Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 2 as we continue walking through Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 13. If you're using one of the blue chair Bibles in front of you, it's going to be on page 808. As I was preparing my sermon this week, I couldn't help but think of a Christian group that was really prominent in the 1990s. Yes, I am going to reference the 90s today as one of my better decades, but I'm sure still exists today, and that is the group Promise Keepers. Uh, maybe some of you attended some of their conferences. Uh, my dad did. I, I remember him going to the old Silver Dome in Detroit, Michigan, where they would fill up these stadiums of men to hear the gospel and to talk about being a godly man. And more so, we're not really going to get into what they would talk about, but as much as their title of what they chose to say, this is what is at the center of being a Christian man, and that is being a promise keeper. If you go to their website today, you can find the seven promises or seven commitments that they believe encapsulate and summarize a godly life. From their website, they say, The seven promises of promise keepers is foundational and are the ways in which we apply the word of God in daily actions. And so making and keeping promises about worship, Christian fellowship, family, and integrity... And I think it makes sense to what it means to be a godly person that you not only say the right things, but that you keep your promises, you keep your commitments. It's hard to trust someone if you can never believe anything that they say or that they always break their promises. I was thinking about that today because at the center of our text in Matthew is the idea that God is the ultimate promise keeper. There's a pattern that I think will be pretty easily seen as we work through the passage. And that as we go through this chapter of the story of Jesus, there's a little bit of narrative, and there's, then there's a reference to an Old Testament prophecy that was fulfilled in that part of the narrative. And so time and time again, we are going to see that God keeps his promises. And as a part of that, we're going to see his sovereignty because it is only because of his great sovereignty that he can keep every promise he makes. And so today as we look at the next chapter of the life of Jesus, we're going to see fulfillment after fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, showing God to be utterly faithful and utterly sovereign in our world. So let's look at the first one, again, beginning in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to see God sovereign in our salvation. Follow along as I read verses 13 to 15. 
Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there unto the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. So after the wise men left, the magi left, we read that an angel of the Lord appeared again to Joseph in a dream. And the angel tells Joseph to take Mary and baby Jesus and flee to Egypt. And the reason is quite clear that Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And Joseph, consistent with what we've seen of him so far in the story, he is quick to obey the word of the, God, word of the Lord through the angel. So they go to Egypt and there remain until the death of Herod. And it's at this point that Matthew stops the narrative and tells us, if you see in verse uh, 15 there, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now I think it's important to notice that Matthew has already ruined the end of the story in that he tells us that they stayed there until the death of Herod. Way to take out all the dramatic uh, tension of this story, Matthew. But I think in some ways that's the point. In seeing God's sovereignty over all of this, there was no, no possibility for failure in the mission to save sinners through Jesus. In fact, there's further no dramatic tension in this story because the solution was said by someone who lived 750 years before Jesus. You see that in the reference in verse 15, spoken by the prophet, that's a reference to Hosea, which we'll come back to in a second. Out of Egypt I called my son. God did not hide his plan and 750 years before it all took place, it was already solved. But this quotation has been recognized as being somewhat of a weird quotation. Especially when you see it in the context of Hosea chapter 11, which is where it comes from. But a part of understanding this quotation that many scholars have fought over its precise meaning... I want to talk about a theme that runs throughout the Gospels, but particularly in Matthew. And that is this, that Jesus is sort of recreating Old Testament history and sort of becomes this picture of a better Israel, a better people of God. And this story, this part of it, echoes two parts of the Old Testament. It echoes when Jacob and his sons flee to Egypt because of a terrible famine that's found in Genesis 46. And then in calling his son out of Egypt, we have Jesus, in essence, repeating the story of the book of Exodus. 
we also see on the face of this that it is a part of a pattern of God's constant provision and protection of his people. He provided the safe place of Egypt to protect the life of Jesus. But we can also learn about the mission of Jesus from this quotation. And so we're helped that Matthew quotes from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And during the week or in your small group, if you want to go through with this in more detail of Hosea chapter 11, but I'm going to highlight a few uh, parts of this passage for us this morning. Because oftentimes when we see an Old Testament quotation, it's not just the verse that's quoted, but the verses around it that are also referenced. So whenever you see a verse quoted, you should go back and read the chapter that that verse is from. And I think you'll see that plainly here. The first thing that Hosea chapter 11 shows us that I think we can see finds fulfillment in Jesus is that God loves his people even when they are unfaithful. When God brought Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus, it was not because they'd earned it, but because of the mercy and grace of God. Listen to Hosea Chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. In a similar way, God sent Jesus not because we deserved it, but because of his great love for us. We were running after the idols of this world just like Israel was and just like every generation of humans on this earth does. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Secondly, we see that God's discipline has an end point that always ends with his compassion. In the history of Israel, they were sent into exile and experienced the rule of other nations as God's discipline against them. So we see in Hosea chapter 11, verse 5, They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. God will exercise discipline on his people. But we see that when the discipline is complete, God's compassion reigns. Hosea 11, verses 8 and 9. How can I give, up? How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will come, I will not come in wrath. In quoting from this chapter, Matthew is telling us that this prophecy finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, the discipline has ended. And we experience God's compassion and not his 
wrath. It is through faith in Jesus Christ that we are forgiven of our sins, reconciled to God, and therefore do not experience the just wrath of God against our sin. This leads to the third movement of Hosea chapter 11. In that God's people have the hope of eternal life. This is from verses 10 to 11 of Hosea chapter 11. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. The picture in Hosea's time was that the exiles would come back home, that God would bring them back. And it's a picture in the culture of Israel to showing reconciliation and peace. And what Matthew is telling us is that those who believe in Jesus, the promised Savior who fulfills Hosea chapter 11, that those who believe in him can also have a reconciled and peaceful future with their God. In Christ, those who belong to him by faith will one day be gathered from the nations. One day God will call us to himself to dwell with him. To use the language of John's gospel to homes that he has prepared. And to use the language of the book of Hebrews to the city that he himself has designed and built. But Matthew is telling us through Hosea that God's people have a hopeful future of dwelling with God forever. And so out of this short little phrase, out of Egypt I called my son, we see God's grace to sinners, his compassion that brings an end to his discipline, and the hopeful future that all who belong to Christ in faith can have, a future not where we are separated from God because of our sin, but where we are reconciled and are at peace forever. This leads to the second movement in Matthew's story here. Let's look at verses 16 to 18, where we're going to see that God is sovereign even in tragedy. Follow along as I read verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. In this terrible part of the story, Herod figures out he's been tricked 
and becoming furious and using the calculations of the wise men, he orders that all male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under were to be killed. A terrible slaughter of innocent children. But what does Matthew then say? He tells us that this was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. And he quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 15. We need to meditate on what Matthew has done here. He has described a great injustice and tragedy, a great act of wickedness and sin. And then says, this was done to fulfill what Jeremiah the prophet wrote. So what are we to learn from this terrible fulfillment? First, in Christ there is hope for a world full of weeping. Our world is full of sin and injustice and wickedness. The Bible does not pretend anything different. Tragedy happens. So what do we do when we face it? Again, we are helped by when Matthew quotes from one verse, we expand that out to the passage surrounding that verse. So what do you do in a world full of weeping? What do you do in a world where innocent children can be slaughtered? Let me read to you Jeremiah 31, 16, and 17, the very next verses from verse 15. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. As one commentator about this writes, Jeremiah 31.15 occurs in a setting of hope. Despite the tears, God says the exiles will return. And now Matthew says that despite the tears of the Bethlehem mothers, there is hope because Messiah has escaped Herod and will ultimately reign. Those who belong to Christ, no matter what happens in this world, have the hope of eternal life where there is no more sin, wickedness, or pain. And along with this, we see that terrible wickedness and tragedy do not defeat the plan of God. Psalm 2 says this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying. Any wicked scheme by the rulers of this world is ultimately thwarted in Christ. 
Jesus' words in John chapter 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In quoting Jeremiah in the context of the story of Jesus, Matthew is telling us that even in a world of terrible acts of true evil and wickedness, that God is in control and if you belong to him, you can have hope. Secondly, I want us to see in quoting from this verse that Matthew is telling us that Jesus is the hope of the new covenant. When Matthew cites from Jeremiah 31, it, we would do well to go to one of the more famous parts of that chapter, and that is verses 31 to 34, referred to as the new covenant. Let me read to you an excerpt from that part of the chapter. Again, this is the same chapter that Matthew quotes from. This is also quoted in Hebrews chapter 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And here's how the end of that new covenant is described. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. In a passage that recognizes the pain and sin of this world. We have a wonderful passage of the hope that we have in our Savior, Jesus Christ. In Christ, we have a new covenant where we are forgiven of our sins, reconciled to God, and have the hope of eternal life. This leads to the last part of our passage found in verses 19 to 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod. He was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Matthew begins by telling us that Herod has died. His plot has failed to kill Jesus. Now, if you want to look this up later, I won't be reading from this, but from our historical records that we have, particularly those from the historian Josephus, we know that Herod died from a terrible disease. And um, as one author notes, Josephus gives a shocking account of both the disease and the death of Herod that you can find on the internet at another time. All I'll say about that today is this. It's hard not to read that description and that story as Josephus records it and not see the divine hand of God. That God was in control and brought judgment on Herod who sought to kill Jesus. 
Jesus. But back to our story in the dream, Joseph is told to take Jesus and Mary back to Israel. And again, Joseph obeys the word of the Lord through the angel. But when he finds out that Herod's son, Archelaus, is ruling in Herod's place, which history confirms was another terrible king, we're told that he's afraid. And so Joseph, through a dream, is told, and he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Joseph takes the family to a city called Nazareth, and then we are told that this was done so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now this is the hardest fulfillment formula in this passage because there is not a specific verse that says he will be called a Nazarene. Now there may be reasons, along with the fact that it says by the prophets plural, that we are supposed to see this as a flow from the Old Testament, generally speaking. And there are different theories as to how to best understand this, but I think the best one is that we are to see this as a part of what the Old Testament says, that the promised Savior would actually be despised for who he was. Let me give you an example of this theme from Isaiah chapter 53. It says this, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So the natural question you should have is, well, what does that have to do with Nazareth? Let me take you to the first chapter of John's Gospel. And we're helped by Jesus being insulted by one of his first disciples. This is John chapter 1, verses 45 to 46. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Philip goes to his friend Nathanael and says, Hey, we've found the promised Messiah. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And how does Nathanael respond? Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. As one commentator about this writes, Jesus the Messiah, Matthew is telling us, did not introduce his kingdom with outward show or present himself with the pomp of an earthly monarch. In accordance with prophecy, he came as the despised servant of the Lord. So what do we take away for our lives from this part of the story? Again, we see that people can plot and scheme as much as they want, but God will win. God sovereignly protected Jesus from the most powerful men in their country at the time. And time and time again, we see throughout this God's sovereignty, and that same sovereignty is with you. 
God, your God is sovereign over all things and you can trust him to provide and protect you. But secondly, we need to see that Jesus lived a normal, humble life. Jesus knew what it was like to be despised. Even down to the fact that Jesus' hometown did not have a good reputation. And in a lot of ways, as I reflected on this part of the passage, I couldn't help but see that Jesus is a lot like you and me. It reminds me of Paul's words to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You may experience being despised. You may despise your own normalcy. But don't pursue the empty idols of power and status that this world pursues. Find peace and joy and rejoice and boast in the Lord and his power and love. And thirdly, I want us to see in this quotation that God is sovereign over every detail of your life. When I read that the town in which Jesus grew up was in accordance with God's promises, I see a God who is in control of all the details of our lives. Even the small details of where you live, where you work, where you grew up, your past experiences, your gifts and talents, all those tiny details that make you, you. God is sovereign over your life in every single one of them. They are gifts that he has given to you. Gifts that you are to use for his kingdom and to serve others. When we see that being from Nazareth was a fulfillment of the promises of God, We need to see a God who is sovereign over every single part of your life and mine. A couple thoughts as we close up this morning. Number one, God is sovereign. At every step in this passage, we see the sovereignty of of God. God is sovereign in our salvation, sending Jesus to save us from our sins. God is sovereign in protecting and providing for his people. God is sovereign even in the moments of great sin, tragedy, 
and pain. And God is sovereign over every single detail of your life, from the big things to the normal things. Secondly, God keeps his promises. We can take comfort in the content of God's promises. He promised to send a savior. He promised to provide for his people. He promised hope in the midst of tragedy. But we can also take comfort in his trustworthy character. Every promise God makes, he keeps. Every movement of our passage today, in those fulfillment formulas, we see the faithfulness of God and that he is the ultimate promise keeper. Everything that God promises in his word, God will do. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word to us this morning that we would see in every step of this passage your great sovereignty over all things. That you are trustworthy because you are in control of history. That when our lives feel out of control, you are there. And nothing happens outside of your will. And God, that we see on display in this passage every instance of you keeping your promise. That every promise in your word you will keep. Every promise of protection, every promise of forgiveness, every promise of your presence with us, every promise of eternal life and hope is ours through faith in Jesus Christ. That we would live out that hope, that we would live out that certainty in every aspect of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for watching this video from Hillside Evangelical Free Church. Our hope is that these resources will help you grow as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. We're located in Greenbank, Washington on Whidbey Island. And if you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to have you join us. You can find out more information at our website at hillside-efc.com.